We are in chapter two of James. There's only five chapters, so we are cracking through. Um, and this chapter, we're just splitting into twos. The last one we did in three sections. This one's just in two. And I'm taking the first 13 verses this morning. Now, I was saying, before we, before we read it, I was saying when we prayed before the service, um, uh, it's actually a very simple passage. And by that I mean it's very straightforward. It's, it's not complicated in what it's telling us. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's simple, and it doesn't necessarily mean um, that uh, it won't throw up any issues for us. It doesn't necessarily mean, in other words, that it's not hard. Because the Bible and what God tells us to do can often be very simple at the same time as being very difficult, very hard when it comes to doing it. So let me read, shall I, Um, from the second chapter of James. So beginning at the first verse. My brothers, but we can read, my brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor here by my feet, have you not not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him whom you belong, to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, that is, love your neighbour as yourself, then you are doing it right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convinced, uh, convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, um, who remembers where we've been so far in James? Has anyone learned anything or has anything stood out to anyone so far? It's audience participation time. And I can stand for a long time in silence. So if it's going to be a battle, I'm going to win. Kim, did you nearly say something there? Oh, the question was, what have we learned? No, well, indeed. Um, what, have we, what have we learned so far? So we've gone through chapter one. Is there anything that stands out to anybody? It doesn't matter if you think it might be the wrong answer or if I didn't say it in a sermon. What have we learned so far? Fiona, your hand at the back is the first. It's that God doesn't judge and is faithful to everyone. Mm. 
God doesn't judge and is faithful to everyone. Yeah, so there was a lot about God being faithful to his promises. You're right. Um, Catherine, your hand did go up there. Yeah, so we had, even, even in the first chapter of James, um, early on, there's that tricky little bit where, um, where oh, I'm going to struggle to find it now, um, but where James immediately says, um, the first line. First nine. First nine, I was guessing it's not the first line. Um, yeah, so believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. So in that they are of low position. They should take pride in the things that they're not rich in. Um, that's really countercultural, isn't it? And, and actually, which is probably, I, I would imagine, one of the reasons you mentioned it is key to what we're looking at today in, in this passage. So I have... Um, I've been thinking a lot about it, as I hope you would expect I would have been. Um, and... I'm going to work through the 13 verses. I might skip some out as we go through. Um, it's not because they're not good verses, but it, it's just um, for the sake of time. Last time, believe it or not, I spoke for 36 minutes. Um, that's long, and I'm not intending to do that again. So um, we're going to hopefully be done by 20 past or just after um, this morning. And as I say, it's not particularly complex. So suppose... A man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And also a poor man comes in in filthy old clothes. What would you do? It's a question for you. It's rhetorical. You don't have to answer it, but I'd like you to answer it in your heart. What would you do? Be honest. And because you're answering it in your heart and not saying out loud, you can be honest without fear of feeling like you're going to be judged by the people around you. What would you do? I was um, at the... Uh, I've been ordained twice now, um, and I've been to several ordination services outside of that. And it always strikes me, and it makes me feel slightly uncomfortable, but the way we structure our, the people that sit in church for an important event like an ordination is we put, um, we put the bishop at the front, and you could argue that that's not the same as a rich person because we're honouring their office, not necessarily that person, but then the Lord Mayor comes in. They, they sit at the front. Um, and uh, I don't even really know what the Lord Mayor does anymore, but it's a very important position. Um, and if you look carefully, this doesn't happen in the cathedral, but if you look carefully in older churches, you'll often find on the pews, there's a little name plate with somebody's name on it. Because someone paid for the pew so that they could sit in it. Um, and they could let that pew out to other people should they want to let other people sit in their pew. But over time, the way that we as the world look at money and value has crept into the way that church does church. And it's so much part of the fabric of how... I don't know why I'm holding this. I'm not really reading anything. It's so much part of the fabric of how we structure what we do um, and I'm talking about, yes, the established church, the Church of England, but, but also free churches as well. Um, it's so much part of the structure and fabric of what we do that we don't even notice anymore. If someone were to be at the front um, dressed like me, 
20, 30 years ago, that, that would have been a bit tricky. I, I was um, part of a church in, in Bristol called, called Christ Church Clifton, and um, there was a story told there about Bear Grylls, who was a student in Bristol and used to go to Christchurch. And uh, Bear Grylls, so the story goes, was barred from uh, reading the scriptures in the service because on the occasion that he was allowed to do it, he came to the front with bare feet and ended the reading instead as I did of saying, this is the word of the Lord. He said, have some of that. (laughs) Um, Now, Clearly, that was not correct in that, in that particular um, place. And interestingly, I think if, particularly if Bear Grylls did, but I think if someone went to that church now and did exactly the same thing, no one would bat an eyelid. So it's not just about the specific stuff in this passage where it says, suppose a man comes in wearing fine clothes and a gold ring. It's not about the specifics of those fine clothes or that gold ring. What we're thinking about here is how the world attributes value versus how God attributes value, and which one of those things we should be more or less like as the church, as the people of God. The clues in the question, I think we all know the answer, but let's let's look through and see if we unpack a little bit more. I wonder if you have ever found yourself um, giving the rich man a good seat in church whether that's sending a flattering email to someone um, because you would like them to offer you some money for something. And flattery is not a bad thing, but did you also ask all the people who you thought were too poor to help you out if they had anything they'd like to contribute? I was listening to a a commentary um, on this this book, on this chapter, and um, I say commentary, it was sort of like in-depth seminars um, and this, this guy, whose name I can't remember now, was telling a story of another guy whose name I definitely can't remember. Um, but this person was, was a, a, a Catholic priest. Um, and he was saying, you know, he was so busy, this guy. He had not an hour free for two months um, in his diary. You could see he got his diary open and every slot was filled right up to kind of 10 p.m. at night. Now, I am quite busy, but I, I think... If you ever see that my diary is so full that for two months I don't have any spare blocks right up until 10 p.m. at night, please do something about it, um, even if it means removing me from where I am. But his point was this guy was so busy. He spent so much time in committee meetings, um, sorting out finance, also seeing people pastorally leading services, spent a lot of time. And they, they had a big financial issue as a church um, and they suddenly needed to raise, raise funds for it. And they raised some funds, but it, they were still short once they'd gone to all the funding places, they'd spoken to the big donors. Um, and so he, just, he realized he needed, to go and, um, he needed to go and ask the people, the congregation, the people of the parish. And he went round, it took him quite a long time, but he went round every, every person's house to say, here's, here's what's going on, um, how... How, how do you think you might be able to help? Would you consider giving money or is there another way um, that you could help? And he found that the people he visited said, you've, you've never visited me once in the entire time I've been in this church, but now that we're in a financial crisis, you've come round to my house and you would like to be friends with me um, so that I could give you some money. 
And this guy reflected that that was true and that the time he'd been spending on people was on the people who could do something for him, so who were going to give him big donations. He realized that unintentionally, not trying to dishonor one set of people and honor another, he had fallen into the way the world values people. Now, money is obviously the clear um, uh, divide being set up here, but we can do this in all sorts of different ways. We can do this by dismissing the young because we think they have nothing to give in a particular situation. And young can mean young like the kids at the back. Young can mean young they've only just started their working life. Young can mean young anything younger than you. And of course it's true the other way around. We dismiss the old because they can't use the internet. Or we dismiss the old because they don't know how things are nowadays. There's always a reason, um, uh, uh, there's, there's always an opportunity for us to dismiss someone or discriminate against someone based on an outward appearance. And then in verse 5, James says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised? He promised those who love him. Now, this is not necessarily a specific and exclusive description of the poor being Christians, and so it's not possible for anyone who isn't poor to be a Christian. Some people have read it that way, um, but that's not really what this is saying. It's not saying um, that God has only chosen those who are poor um, in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, but it is saying that it seems to be a lot easier for those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. And what does it mean to be rich in faith? Any ideas? Kim? Yeah. Your riches aren't in the bank account. When stuff goes wrong for me, honestly, the first thing I do is I think, right, let's sort this out. Uh, we'll get a list of all the things that are going wrong. We'll see if we can uh, tick any of those things off easily, sort those out. I say, a Abby writes the list. Um, she's much better at that than I am. And then we go through and we see which things we can sort out. And then we think, well, where do we need to put some money to, get, so to pay someone else to come and help us out with this? Where can we? And sometimes, either when you don't have much means behind you or... And, and this works wherever you are on either scale, or when you hit a problem that's so big, you can hope to meet those needs, those, those needs through your own means. Whether we're talking about money or other resources of skill. That is when we become rich in faith, or at least we have the opportunity to become rich in faith. Because we go into our father, which is, you know, folks have been going to their parents for years and years, and say, <coughs> Can you help me out? I don't have what I need to fix this problem. Can you help me out? And we have faith that he will. Being rich in faith is far richer, ultimately, than being rich in the bank. It's about our dependence on God, our trust in him, and our confidence in God's provision. Do you remember um, in the first chapter, there was a point made about not being double-minded. 
about being confident that God would come through. Being rich in faith isn't just knowing that God is there and could help you. It's knowing that God will help you and resting on that in confidence, trusting that He will. And those people are the ones that will inherit the kingdom. That means they're the final establishment of God's dominion over your life, over your hearts. Um, yes, in some ways it means that, that they're the people that will go to heaven, but that's not really. Um, they'll inherit the kingdom, it means that it's, it's expressing something of the now and not yet. They will inherit the kingdom. It's not happening now. Though we're covered by the blood and we're no longer guilty, we also still do things that require us to confess. There's a, a now, totally saved, and a not yet, still not the same as Jesus in our everyday practice. And then it says, and it's an interesting um, comment on, um, are not the rich the ones that are exploiting you? And isn't this funny? How um, we would probably, I'm guessing, honour Rishi Sunak were he to walk through the door just now. In some way. There are a lot of people giving it large right now, giving me some faces that no way. I do that. Other people, absolutely not. If Rishi walked in, you would. Partly, he'd be surrounded by security. Um, but we would defer because of partly because of a, a, an honour of the office that he holds, but partly because it's not quite it, is it? Rishi is actually a great example because not only does he have an important office and represent a lot of wealth in the national sense. He is also personally very, very wealthy. We would honor him. But if, personally through there, um, there's a man in the army called Nathan, um, that's not his name, who bats around the streets of, of Newcastle, and uh, he would not give you the Rishi Sunak vibes when he came in. He wouldn't be coming in surrounded by security. And you might smell him after you saw him. Huh? He might be. He might be, but I would just imagine they would follow up with him. But you might smell him before you saw him. Will we also turn around and defer to that person, find a seat for them, make sure they were well cared for? Now, I think we would, but what would be happening in our lives? Would we be more worried about the opinion that person has of us, or of we can insert this if you like, if you feel better about King Charles, we can insert this in instead. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, then you are doing it right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as the law breaks. That is the crux verse. That's really all this passage is saying. You can pull a lot more out of it, but essentially it's saying. Love your neighbor as yourself. We all love ourselves. However much we struggle with self-worth and self-charity, everything else, at, what, at, at, at a core level, we love ourselves enough to feed ourselves, and we love ourselves enough to relate to the world through us all the time. We filter things based on what our opinion is of stuff. 
If we were to just love other people, we might be love ourselves. Give them the same value we ascribe to what we want people to give us. Things would be a lot better. And this point about the law, which is the last point I'm, I'm going to uh, pick up on, is interesting. Um, I used to, forgive me if I've done this before, if I've said this to you before, but um, God sees sin in the same way, um, uh, differently to us. Um, and it's the same as the difference between an analog signal or a graph and a digital signal. Now, you may feel lost at this point, and you're worrying that I'm going to go some technical stuff, um, but I'm not. When you see a graph, um, uh, you see it kind of goes up and waves around and has lots of peaks and troughs, um, and it's not all the same. Do, do I have any any nods? Has anyone seen a graph like that? Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So if you imagine that you saw a sound signal represented, would have lots of different things. It would be bigger where the sound is bigger, and it would be smaller where the sound is smaller. Um, God doesn't see sin like that. We see sin like that. Well, the little sin that we do isn't important. It doesn't matter. The big sin other people do be massive and does matter. God sees it in a digital way. Digital signals are either on or off. They're either there or not. There's sin or no sin. And this is the point that's being made. I often, um, when speaking about faithful people, particularly someone that doesn't have a Christian background, and I'm talking about the concept of sin, um, I'm trying to explain this to people, and, and they'll say, oh, well, what's wrong with doing such and such a thing? I'm not a murderer. <coughs> um, or, we, when we're trying to explain how serious a thing that someone is doing wrong is, say, well, you wouldn't murder someone, would you? And we're trying to conflate the two. And it seems like, oh, that seems a bit, a bit harsh, a bit odd, of an odd thing to do. But there's exactly what's happening here. James gives this example of adultery and murder. He says, well, if you haven't committed adultery, but you have murdered, that's still sin. You don't get a free pass because you get okay in one thing. You need a completely clean sheet. That's how God views sin. But the purpose here is not so that everyone reading this goes, oh, but I've not murdered or committed adultery, so job done. But then if you commit any sin, then you are simple. You've fallen short of the standard required. And the point that James is making here is that makes you the same as everybody else. Whether they just got out of prison for something that you would never count as doing, or whether you think they're really quite a good person. We all fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, there's no reason to show any partiality to one over another. Let me just check on those to see if there's anything profound I need to say before I finish. It was just about the law of liberty. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. It's a, a law that um, 
sets us free from our sin. It's not the law of the Old Testament, but it's the law as reinterpreted by Jesus. That starts the first and most important man, love the Lord your God, all this law, etc. Um, and the second is like it, like a neighbor's yourself. But it also gives us the freedom and the power and the responsibility to love our neighbors as ourselves. Gives us the freedom from our own sin, relieves our debt, but gives us the freedom and the power to be better. And, and James is an uncomfortable book because it tells us a lot about what we should be doing. And we're used, particularly in the Evangelical Church and the West, to hearing lots about um, how we're saved by grace alone. And that is true. But we don't want it to be cheap grace, where it doesn't require anything of us afterwards, where we don't need to continue to change. Um, it, it makes me think of not something from the Bible, but um, something from Spider Man. <laughs> uh, in 2002, Spider Man won. In <clears throat> I don't know who remembers that. Um, but Uncle Ben, not the man who makes the sources, um, tells Peter Parker, who's the, um, that's the secret, um, no, the, the real identity of, of Spider Man, but with great power comes great responsibility. It's one of the most <coughs> often quoted films as the Bible. And I've ever come across. <laughs> that and um, if you build it, they will come. Neither of those things are in the Bible, but at least that one from Spider-Man does really true to what we're reading in James here. We have great power and freedom given to us in the Lord of Liberty, but we don't do something with it. We have a responsibility to be better. Better than whatever you are now, or better than your neighbor, or better than whatever you are now, to keep going on that journey of being better, of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus.